What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. Um, and a gentleman that I had interviewed, uh, I think about a year and a half ago, about his investment bank, just got uh, uh, a major um, cover story uh, and was described as the world-leading, uh, most promising investment bank in 2020, um, the first major decentralized investment bank. And I thought it would be interesting in this uh, time of market turmoil and uh, markets down, uh, and we're all working remotely and wondering what's going to happen in the future, to reach out to David Weald, who uh, runs uh, this company, and find out a little bit more about what uh, what he's all about, what the company is all about, and why he's won this uh, this accolade. Uh, and just to tell you a little bit about David Weald, he is uh, known for being the former vice chairman of NASDAQ and the head of investment bank in equity capital markets at Prudential Securities. And he is credited as the individual that got the Jobs Act passed in Washington. The father of the Jobs Act, in fact, uh, was something that uh, was uh, he was described at. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Jobs Act because it really laid the foundation for crowdfunding in the United States. David, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm terrific. Thank you, Brian. There's one thing I correct. You said it was that it was, uh, world's leading investment banks or most promising investment banks in 2020. It's actually 2022. 2022. I apologize. Just right now, recently. Yeah, yeah. Just this is actually uh, th- th- that that article apparently got released just over this weekend, so it's uh, hot off the press. And they described that uh, you're doing this, uh, running this diversified. Uh, sorry, not this diversified. This decentralized investment bank by being dispersed, independent, with proven professionals that collaborate remotely to deliver better results. Tell me a little bit about what uh, what your investment bank does and how it does it and why it is so different well we we kind of uh understood that you know from our work on the jobs act that there had been a collapse in the in or and consolidation in many of the you know major middle market investment banks in the country and so you know we postulated that there were going to be a lot of people that needed to associate with platforms partly because i was just getting so many calls from people you know, for help, there was a lot of ageism on Wall Street, you know, people left bigger firms, they were rationalizing their businesses, we kind of peeled the onion a little bit found that there could be as many as 5000 investment bankers sprung loose in a particular year. And so 5000. Yeah, no, it it can be like when you in the wake of things like the uh, financial crisis of 2008, that was kind of the number that we, we we sort of uh, observed, but in a normal year, it'd be over a 1000. And, um, and so we looked at it and we realized that the industry was a lot bigger in terms of numbers of professionals than we thought, probably 185,000 or so globally, maybe more than, more than half of them were in the United States, you know, writ large, you know, including institutional equity salespeople, things that support the investment banking business. So we said, look, and this is before COVID, I'll mind you, in two, late 2016, 2017, when my board said we could go in this direction. And, um, and we, we saw that uh, that there was a need for people that were acting as independent contractors and trying to set, you know, hang out their own shingle. And they weren't being particularly effective because, as I like to say, investment banking is a team sport and you need to collaborate with people. You need to find that expert in energy or mining or healthcare services or life sciences and and collaborate with them. You need salespeople to support what you're doing. And so these little boutique investment banks don't work very well. So we said, you know, you got to do it at scale and, you know, you can't take on the fixed costs. So we're going to start with independent contractors and just uh, have them work from home. And that was before COVID and it was working pretty well. And then, you know, but I think some people thought we were a little crazy and then it, it got bigger. And then during COVID, I think all of a sudden people thought we were brilliant. And uh, 
because we were already, we didn't miss a beat. You know, the business accelerated. Uh, we made the Inc. 5000, fastest growing private companies in the country. And uh, some of the core things that we thought would happen, we went from 0% of people collaborating with people they met because of the platform to 50% of the deals are now collaboration and growing. And so uh, it's uh, gratifying. And then plus it's given us a bigger, even bigger platform, I think, to get back to doing public policy, social impact work, because we are now supporting professionals in 24 states in the United States and, uh, and uh, four countries, including the United States, including uh, a little bit in Canada. We're actually registered in in three provinces in Canada to do institutional business now. Awesome. And I understand that business is so good that you've done equal to 2021 in the first six months of 2022. Is that right? Exceeded it by 30%. Oh, much better. Well, I can say we had a good year in the first six months of 2022. How do you do that when markets are down uh, like 35% in the NASDAQ? Well, I mean, it's a little bit of luck. I mean, we had business in, you know, in, in process that was closing with some larger transactions that closed. But I mean, you know, what, what happens is you get bigger is that you get you, you're able to compete for bigger business and you pull together a virtual team of really traditional, you know, terrific folks. And and, uh, you know, they 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 bet on the jockeys, you know, as much as the horse and um and uh, so we, we've seen coming through our, you know, our, our business review committee, commitment committee, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a number of larger, a number of larger transactions that, you know, historically might have gone to a much bigger, more established firm. Sounds exciting. And you're in four uh, provinces in Canada. Uh, I think three. I, I have to go check the number, but I think it's, I think it's three. We're up in Ontario, I know. And uh, and how many uh, how many independent contractors would you have registered uh, with your organization in Canada? Any idea? Well, right now it's mostly people that are like needing to be registered in the United States because they want to solicit and they need to be supervised, you know, for uh, under FINRA uh, Financial Regulatory Authority uh, rules in the United States, and so. I, we've done a little bit of institutional distribution. It's a handful of people, not very large yet. I mean, honestly, we, we've done it more as, a, uh, as an accommodation so far, Brian. And, um, and it, there's a little bit of you know, complexity management associated with it. And we have, we have you know, plans to be in a bunch of countries in a bigger way, but you know, with, a, with a bigger, broader registration, so to speak. Uh, but we want to do it um, uh, you know, when, when we think we can handle the complexity management that that uh, assume so. For example, I mean, we'd like to be in in uh, in the UAE at some point. Uh, there's a, a lot of interest in cross border transactions. The Abraham Accord with Accords with Israel. Um, I think that we obviously want to build out a bigger a bigger uh, post in uh, Canada. It's you know right across the border, and there's we've we've got people doing mining, and obviously it's one of the most important mining centers in the world. We uh, we want to go uh we, we we need to be in europe but that one's been made more complicated by brexit I mean, it used to be that automatically you'd go into london we may need to go into london and go somewhere on the continent uh we'll see uh luxembourg for example but we, we we've got to figure that out but we but you know each one of those things requires a different registration and a different layer of cost and so we we got to make sure that we're big enough to, and we're organized at, at the point that we enter into one of those markets to get real synergy with what we're doing in the U.S. I mean, the good news is the U.S. is the world's largest capital market and lots of foreign companies want to come to the U.S. So having this capability in the U.S. also attracts a certain number of foreign clients. We're going to take a break. Be back in two minutes. Stay with us, everybody. Stream us live at Saga960AM.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. I've welcomed back to the show David Wild, who runs a company, an investment bank in the United States called uh, Wild & Company. Um, they recently got an award, um, a cover story, uh, for being uh, the most diversified uh, investment bank and uh, one of the fastest growing um, in the Inc. 5000. Um, fascinating uh, different business model in the investment banking business. But David, uh, you sort of got your reputation based on... Uh, on both your uh, your 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 
operation of a major investment bank, but also that you were critical at that time in, uh, in instituting um, the Jobs Act and crowdfunding the Jobs Act. Tell me a little bit about how that changed uh, raising money in the United States. Well, I, I back up and I'd say, look, I, I was vice chairman of NASDAQ, and, um, and I think that gave me a certain amount of credibility in, in, you know, with Congress. I mean, I probably didn't appreciate it at the time, but you know, when I was vice chairman, I, I, I ran the listings businesses for NASDAQ globally and uh, followed my mentor, who was the CEO of Prudential Securities, Wick Simmons, when he became chairman and CEO of NASDAQ and uh, worked with the Dean of Friedman as a contemporary when I was there. She's now the CEO of NASDAQ. Um, you know, my job allowed me to meet uh, Steve Jobs. Uh, I, 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 I spent a lot of time talking to Steve Jobs. I think uh, uh, one, one, one of the, in hindsight, one of the more interesting experiences was uh, uh, he, he called me up and, and threatened to take his listing over to the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, if we didn't, uh, when he found out that we were standardized on Dell laptops, if we didn't move over to the Mac. And uh, I had to explain to him that uh, w that uh, the Mac was not, did not integrate with the BlackBerry at the time. And, uh, and uh, you know, we loved, we loved the Mac, we used it in our graphics department, but you know, everybody, it didn't work for people that were out in the field. And so he, found that interesting. And then for every month, once a month for the next, you know, couple of years, at least, he would pick my brain about how people were using the BlackBerry. And uh, now with the blinding light of hindsight, I realized that he was designing the iPhone at the time, because this was before the iPhone was, uh, right. was, uh, was launched. But, you know, Tom Stenberg chaired my issuer affairs committee, and he was the founder of uh, Home Depot. Uh, you know, met Steve Ballmer a number of times when he was running Microsoft, uh, Craig Barrett, uh, who uh, ran Intel. And, um, you know, so it was a it was a heady place to be. And um, and uh, I loved it. I mean, it was I felt like I was doing something that was really contributing to the U.S. economy. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, when I left NASDAQ, uh, I. Um, I, uh, I, I, I lived through that period of, I call affectionately the bubble rubble when the dot-com bubble had, had corrected and had, had the sort of the, 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 the distinction of having to. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities cbp agents and officers are keeping people safe join u.s customs and border protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself learn more at cbp.gov careers temple university is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the u.s through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty temple students are prepared to soar in their careers schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit keep uh, the, the, uh, the regulators from delisting lots of, of NASDAQ listed companies during a recessionary corrective period. So I didn't think that that was in the best interest of the country. And if you broke the buck, the, sing, the dollar uh, line, and there were a lot of short sellers that were pushing these stocks below that level, you had the risk of delisting lots of smaller companies that needed to keep the lights on. And so I, uh, I uh, started working with the general counsel's office and with the SEC. We got a moratorium in place and we were able to save a lot of companies until the market rebounded. The SEC was absolutely terrific. And, and, uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think that that experience with regulators, you know, and, and Mary Shapiro subsequently became an, the SEC chair at the time was an EVP at, fin, at, uh, at the NASD, which became FINRA. Rick Ketchum was my partner. Uh, he was he had been a, a, a former head of the division of corporation finance at the SEC uh, and um, and uh, subsequently became this the, the CEO of FINRA and um, you know it, it uh, they were my partners so I got to understand I, I think the way few people from Wall Street do you know what what the concerns of regulators are how political their job can be and so I think it equipped me to 
navigate uh, Washington and also to have a little bit more credibility than the average person. And so um, then I started to work on capital formation and, and its impact on innovation, job, job creation, upward mobility, wrote a series of papers and those papers got picked up on Capitol Hill, picked up across the world. I wrote one for the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development you know, which is the sort of like the United Nations of free market economies uh, headquartered in Paris called Making Stock Markets Work to Support Economic Growth. We did a comparative analysis of 26 uh, IPO markets, including Canada and uh, the United States, and uh, was one of the most widely read papers and, you know, by, by uh, academicians and, uh, and, uh, and uh, policymakers. And uh, so, you know, the, the, work, the work that we did, you know, sort of led to a rethinking of some of these access to capital issues. It, one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of is, is that uh, we made it easy for people who are poor through general solicitation, crowdfunding, uh, and, and similar enhancements to finally raise capital, which is, you know, if you're, you know, most businesses are started with capital from friends and family. And if you can't solicit people that are, uh accredited investors or other investors then you're effectively doomed to not get a business started and so so i'm really proud of the fact that that you know for uh, particularly people of color in inner cities part that were you know from poor neighborhoods and things that if they have the moxie and they have the wisdom that now they have the toolkit to actually have a shot at raising capital we got a lot more work to do in that area but i i think that's been uh, for many people, transformative. Judging from the number of people that have, have uh, you know, have gone out of their way to say thank you. So tell me, what exactly was the uh, the improvement, uh, the advancement that you passed in the Jobs Act? Well, there were a number. I mean, first of all, the Jobs Act is an omnibus bill. There were there were seven different titles of the Jobs Act. The first six were really the, I think, the ones that 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 mattered. The seventh was tacked on, which said that you had that, that the SEC had to had to market market it to uh, uh, women and minorities and the like. But the first, you know, six included things like Reg CF crowdfunding. It included the emerging growth company uh, designation for IPOs, which essentially made it less costly for people to get pub, uh, public. It allowed them to essentially suspend some of the more costly provisions for the first five years of their public company life. Uh, it also, you know, inc included testing the water. So it, it sort of, it, 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 there, for a long time, you could not talk to investors. You had a blackout period for six months before you went public. And we got rid of that. And the, the reason why that was important is now we could go all of a sudden and solicit crossover buyers, including Fidelity and T. Rowe Price to come in to, to do due diligence, but in life sciences, the more vertically integrated life sciences accounts like Orbimed and Deerfield that would then show up on a cap table and credentialize the company before they went public. So people now knew that somebody had actually done real intellectual property due diligence on that company and had given them their imprimatur, their good housekeeping seal of approval. Because up until that point, if you went public, what would happen is, you know, you'd, you'd basically get a one one hour meeting on an IPO roadshow to kick the tires. And of course, in a heavy IP company that's pre-revenue, which is the entire life sciences market, you know, going into phase three clinicals, you know, you, you, that just doesn't work. And so, you know, I, I think I famously said to Meredith Cross, who was I was speaking at the SEC, and she asked me about testing the waters for, you know, IPOs and or the, you know, that practice of basically putting everybody under the cone of silence for six months before they went public. And what did I think about it? And I said something to the effect of, I, I well, I think, I think you should be, I think you should be work, working for the Chinese because you've really created a competitive disability for the country. I mean, at, at the time that's most important for people to get out and kick tires, you've essentially caused people not to be able to say anything and communicate. So what's the other, what's the other, side of the argument why, why do they have that why did they have that six you know, months uh, I, I, honestly brian i sometimes think that you know that what what was the blessing the great blessing was that i was vice chairman of nasdaq so people automatically assume that i'm you know sort of part of the establishment and that i'm not a crazy person and i've got a 
I've got a lot of, uh, of, 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 of useful experience, but I really feel sometimes like I'm the little boy in the emperor's new clothes. And um, that some of this stuff, which should be obvious to people, for whatever reason, hasn't been questioned. It's been sort of legacy and the people don't know why it's there sometimes. And it was the same thing with the repeal of the pro prohibition against general solicitation. And I said famously to folks, you know, why do we care who we talk to? Why don't we just care about who we actually ticket the stock with, sell the stock to? I mean, it just seems so apparent. Why do we care? Uh, you know, that, I mean, why, don't, why do we care if somebody takes a billboard out in, in the middle of Times Square about an offering for that matter? As long as it's you know, factually correct, and people are given adequate information. But if you're dealing with accredited investors who's, you know, who, who allegedly are sophisticated and everything, does it matter that I talk to, you know, somebody who doesn't have a high net worth? I mean, maybe they'd like to hear about it and learn something. And so I think that people, people realize that there was a lot of just common sense in what we had to say and i think the you know i think lawyers many times you know they 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 worship at the twin tablets of the 33 act and the 34 act and maybe the third tablet which is the 40 act the investment company act of 1940 and um and you know as a as a, a guy who built businesses i sort of have always asked the question on wall street i've always asked the question you know how can we do it better and you know why is this here and can we get it to change and so you know right i mean this was one of the things that happened during covid you know i mean we have a regulatory structure that really doesn't in this in the united states doesn't contemplate hyper decentralized models and people working from home and we have a lot of structural impediments to women staying in the workforce and to you know accommodating minorities that want to work in the middle of downtown, uh, in, in the middle of an impoverished area that may have the, the experience of being able to curate a transaction and act as an investment banker, but need a sales force to raise the capital. And so I think that we've unwittingly through these, these many of these structural impediments, you know, inhibited capital from getting to places that need that capital that would, would actually do us a lot of good, create a lot of upward mobility, job growth, net worth, you know, and and, uh, and, and ultimately uh, in, in integration and uh, assimilation that I think is so important to creating a more perfect, a more perfect union. So, uh, you know, I think we're scratching at the surface of the things that we can do on the public policy side. We're gonna come back off of this platform. I mean, I've got, you know, with, with, with now supporting job growth directly in 24 states in the United States, I think that's a great platform to, start getting back and working on thought leadership pieces and getting into Congress and rolling up our sleeves and doing some things that'll make, make you know, the United States and hopefully Canada, you know, much more competitive over the long run because we have bigger you know, bigger adversaries. And if we don't, you know, get better and they're bigger, we're, you know, we're, we're not going to enjoy the outcome and our kids are not going to enjoy the outcome. And, uh, and so, you know, for me, I want to leave it all on the, on the field of life and, uh, want to make sure that we're the best that we can be and that our kids have the every opportunity that we had to succeed and to stay free and to uh, uh, to enjoy the, the fruits of a of a strong national defense that needs to be funded and needs to needs to uh, leverage off of, uh, uh, you know, strong innovation and technology, technological leadership. I mean, these things are absolutely critical. You have a strong public policy bent, even though you're a Wall Street investment banker. Is that uh, unusual? Yeah, it's very unusual. But what drove me to Wall Street was very unusual, too. My dad is a Yale intellectual properties you know, lawyer, and we used to have debates at the, at the dinner table about I was actually a molecular geneticist by training. I went to started a doctorate and 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 then I saw Genentech go public in 1980 and the stock gapped open from 30 and, you know, closed up upwards of $80 a share. And I was just, oh, my God, look at that. You know, capital can be used to fund, you know, transformative innovation, revolutionary changes that will do great good to society. So what drove me to Wall Street and and had me shift and go do an MBA instead was, you know, was just seeing uh, uh, money run after 
technological innovation. And I sort of said, boy, I, 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 I would like to you know, work potentially in venture capital or things like that, um, that where we were actually doing things that might have great social impact. So I got to Wall Street with a, with a, a social impact interest, which I think is, is fairly rare as opposed to just a, how can I make money interest. The Job Act was passed by Obama. Is that not correct? Yeah, I was signed into law April 5th of, of 2012, and I was there in the Rose Garden, and it was a beautiful, sunny day. Most people wouldn't think of Obama as someone that would be overly interested in uh, capital markets, uh, econ economics, etc. cetera. Uh, how were you able to persuade that administration to pass this? I think it was a little bit of serendipity. I mean, we, it was actually a Republican-drafted bill, and... Um, in the in the U.S. House of Representatives, and then um, a couple of Democrats, one who was a senator, subsequently became a U.S. was a, I'm sorry, he was a U.S. senator at the time, Senator Ted Kaufman, who had been the chief of staff for years and years for uh, President Biden. Um, I got in front of with uh, with uh, his uh, chief of staff Jeff, uh, Jeff um, uh, Conadin, and. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And um, he completely got it. I mean, Ted is a really bright guy, big public servant. He's retired now. Um, but I showed him the charts that we had showing the drop off in the small IPO and the loss of publicly, com publicly listed companies. And uh, Ted is a Wharton graduate, went to Duke undergraduate and, and Wart, Wharton uh, uh, for his uh, MBA. And, uh, and he started giving you know, speeches, but his chief of staff, Jeff Connerton, walked me into the U.S. Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is part of the White House uh, conglomerate, the executive branch, and sat me in front of, of uh, the number two in that office, and then somebody who was in the room uh, was that was Tom Khalil. And then somebody who was in the room was uh, was uh, turned out was a special advisor uh, to the to the president, to President Obama. And I guess we broke through. And then what I heard through the grapevine is that President Obama put two lobbyists on the Senate Democrats. And the next thing you know, instead of that, you know, usually what happens is you have a whole new bill that's 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 in drafting form in the senate and there was nothing in the senate so they took the house bill they made a couple of changes on it they sent it back to the house for an up or down vote and the next thing you knew it was on the on the president's desk and signed into law and that's how it happened but i mean the president wanted the bill obama wanted the bill and i think that and i i never spoke to president obama about it but i think that they understood that it was going to help uh, lots of people that were entrepreneurial in spirit raised capital that heretofore hadn't. And very interestingly, when uh, after it was passed into law, I spent a lot of my time actually speaking in front of the black community. And um, and so it was very clear that it 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 really it, they had been effectively you know the poor black community in the country had effectively been deprived of, of of access to capital and and that this was giving them a toolkit to actually uh you know change the way the game was played so i spoke at the national black chamber of commerce i spoke i was actually went to the white house for the i have a dream summit um 
I spoke at Rodney Sampson's, he wrote the book Kingonomics at his, uh, 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 at, at his Kingonomics conferences. I spoke uh, for Jesse Jackson at the Rainbow Push Coalition because there was such a thirst for understanding how these tools could, could be used to get businesses started in the African-American community. Fantastic. Congratulations. That sounds uh, really, really quite transform transformative. We're going to take a break for some messages and then come back more with uh, David Weird, um, Weld, sorry, of, uh, of uh, Weld & Co., uh, a diversified investment bank in the United States who's had a real impact on raising capital in the United States and talk a little bit about venture capital, raising capital in the United States, but also in Canada and, uh, and how market uh, turmoil recently has impacted it. Stay with us, everybody. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga960. We're talking about financial markets, particularly financial markets for smaller companies. Um, and uh, my guest is David Weld of uh, uh, Weld & Company. Um, it's a decentralized investment bank. I apologize, I said diversified. It's a decentralized investment bank um, where he has a model that uh, really independent contractors from uh, different states in the United States and different countries, including Canada, uh, become investment banks under investment bankers under his uh, his organizational uh, his organization's uh, auspices umbrella. Um, but David, what we were talking about was raising money for startup companies. And I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about what you think is happening in the market. So venture capital funding, I understand, is down dramatically uh, in 2022 versus 2021. And 2021 was a big year for raising venture capital money. Um, SPACs, uh, um, um, which I think some people thought were copies of uh, the Canadian CPC model, which is sort of public venture capital, raised an incredible amount of money over the last couple of years. And from what I understand, um, are, a lot of them are, are, are sitting still with the cash and, and they've got a time frame to make, uh, make acquisitions, to do RTOs, uh, reverse takeovers with that uh, cash and haven't been able to do it. And a lot of the companies that actually did transactions last year are now trading below uh, what, the, what the cash raised was. Um, the NASDAQ, uh, that you used to be vice chair of is down something like 35% uh, since last year. Um, uh, the, the, the regular stock market is down some 20 X percent. Um, some people think that, uh, that the typical bear market is in the thirties. And so therefore there might be another 10 or 15% to go, um, with, uh, the, the NYSC and, and, the, and the major markets. Tell me, is it challenging raising money for startup companies today? Well, maybe for startup companies, I, I think we're not dealing with, um, you know, startup companies as much as we are, you know, focused on companies that are doing A and B and C rounds. Uh, there has been a, you know, there, there, there is a, an adjustment going on. There always is with, you know, in reflecting the decrease in prices and value, you know, the, the valuations in public markets. And so I think you're seeing valuations come in in private markets. I think that a lot of a venture capitalists, for instance, have a lot of cash. And there have been some big funds and that money's got to be put to work. But I think that, you know, they're biding their time a little bit and, and watching the valuations. The, 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 you know, there's a set of expectations on valuations by entrepreneurs that, you know, was set by higher market valuations. And it takes a while before, you know, reality sort of sets in and the valuations uh, get adjusted. And... Um, but I think that there's still going to be a lot of money put to work, and we're closing a lot of business at, at uh, Wield & Co. Um, but I, I think that that ABC round, you know, kind of area is a little bit less sensitive. The M&A um, is a uh, business a little bit less sensitive uh, in private markets. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think most people think that if we have a you know a recession, or if we are in a recession already, that it's going to be a you know a, a, a moderate recession. I think most people think that when these markets, public markets, correct. If you go back over the last you know twenty years, these bear mar markets have been shorter in duration um, than they were historically. So you know my guess is is that we rearrange the deck chairs a bit and we get back to business. 
Uh, there are a couple of things that we need to work through in these economies that we'll be, we'll be working through for a long period of time. And look, it's not just Wield & Co. that's decentralizing. There's a lot of people that moved. Uh, there's a great migration that went on because of COVID. There's a lot of technology that's enabling people to work remotely. You're seeing people, you know, look, setting up manufacturing plants in places that are off the, you know, the traditional water utility grid uh, and putting in place. So you're seeing decentralized water purification uh, kinds of technologies start to kind of come into their own and decentralized energy uh, 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 generation, electricity generation. So I, I, I think that what we're kind of experiencing is maybe more impactful to how economies are set up than even maybe the industrial revolution was and really? it's, you know, it's a massive decentralization change and i'm not sure i'm not saying that it's going to change you know uh productivity and output and, and it will do that too i'm not smart enough maybe to know exactly how but it is definitely going to rearrange the deck chairs you know where people live and uh, how they consume you know resources in uh, very very profound ways cities so this well decentralization that uh, you know this work from home that took place during covid you think is a trend that will continue it's permanent it it doesn't mean that you aren't going to have people flowing back into cities some there are some things that you know people uh you know can only do face to face um you know procreate is one of them right uh you so, you know, the CEO of Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley that say you got to be in the office 40 hours a week if you want to get paid. And they got an incredibly powerful brand and people, you know, and, 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 and they are the exception rather than the rule. The rest of the world is going to have to figure out how to accommodate people if they want to keep people. And, uh, but you also have people that are sitting there saying, God, I can go to, you know, I can buy real estate on the cheap. And, uh, you know, I can set up a plant because more and more people are coming up with more and more technologies to support that kind of hermetically sealed uh, manufacturing facility with water purification, with electricity gener uh, uh, um, uh, generation, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're, you're going to see fundamental change. You got people that want to live different places. I mean, I, I, I talk to law firms in New York and yeah, they want people back into the office because they think that there needs to be some face-to-face -face mentorship of young, of, of young associates, but they're saying maybe three days a week, not five days a week. Well, all of a sudden now, that means that you've got four, day, four days a week where you know your primary residence is somewhere other than Manhattan. And so a lot of these people are staying out of their country homes. And so the world's changed. I mean, it, and, and it's not changing back. That genie's out of the bottle. And uh, then the question is, so much investment has been made into some of these technologies that it's just going to get better and better to be remote. I mean, I'm talking to companies that are doing, you know, logistics software to be able to run, you know, jets from local, uh, you know, uh, from from remote markets more cost effectively because time is money and they understand that, you know, that, uh, you know, big corporations are going to have to not just go to major primary, you know, um, airports uh you know or secondary airports but probably tertiary airports i mean this is the discussion that's going on and so so when 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 people started thinking that way then uh, then the accoutrements to to handle that kind of remote work only improve and they get stronger and stronger i mean think about the metaverse right you're going to be able to put a headset on and you're going to be able to be effectively in the office and walk around the office and do whatever you need to do, but do it virtually. That's what's going to happen. So why do you need to be in the office? Honestly, you're going to get you'll, you'll get an experience which becomes closer and closer to being uh, to, to being in person. And uh, so I, I think that I think that people underestimate what just happened. Um, I think that it is uh, I think that uh, you know, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, because they are J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, and where Morgan Stanley can, you know, can pound the drum and get people back into the office because those are exceptional organizations with exceptional brands where people make, you know, exceptional amounts of money and they're willing to put up with the wear and tear to have that opportunity. 
certainly young people, because, you know, that's part of, of, of uh, being mentored and trained in the apprenticeship program that is, you know, Wall Street. But for the rest of the world that are making lifestyle change, you know, choices, you want your kids, you know, brought up on a ranch, you're going to be able to be in financial services and bring your kids up on a ranch. You need to attend to a, uh, an aging parent uh, that's in the middle of the uh, of uh, the uh, of a depressed area of Baltimore, and uh, you worked at Morgan Stanley. You may just leave Morgan Stanley to go work for Weald and Co. and work in the in the inner city and take care of that aging parent. That's what's going on, and that's what will continue to go on. It's a complete tsunami. Fascinating. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, Canada, if I could. Um, you know, a lot of people think that uh, if you're in the mining or oil and gas business, you can raise money in Canada, but that it's challenging in technology and life sciences in, uh, in a lot of other areas. Uh, and then you might be able to get, uh, um, you know, money in an IPO, but a lot of companies, when they need the big bucks, have got to go to NASDAQ or, uh, or New York. Um, if uh, you were advising the Canadian government, what suggestions might you have for, uh, for what we need to do in Canada to improve our capital markets? Well, I think the ability to kind of do things cross border and look, we, we, we embrace Canada with regulation A plus. I mean, if you read the if you read the statute from the Jobs Act, the title, you'll see that Canada was included. You know, other foreign countries are not. You know, I think I think that, uh, you know, companies and entrepreneurs need to get to where the capital is. And they need to go to where the experts in their industries are. And if there are big pools of experts in the United States, you know, you'd like to remove the friction for, you know, with the U.S. government uh, and uh, for people to come into the United States and vice versa, which is to say that, you know, it, it should be made very easy for U.S. entrepreneurs in mining, for example, and natural resources and so on to go into Canada where people really under, have the expertise and understand the business. That would be my, look, you know, you're not gonna fight the fact that, I think in the United States, I was looking at something, maybe not since the correction, but the the actual equity market value was last year, 80, $90 trillion. And it's a staggering amount of money. And so, you know, for me, what, what, what I've spent a good part of my, you know, my you know, last 15, 20 years trying to figure out is how do you take some of that massive large cap wealth and just tip some of it into earlier stage companies to set off a tsunami, a, 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 a tidal wave of, of, of innovation and, and, and growth, job formation. Uh, and I, and uh, I think that that, that is, that is kind of what we're all thinking about. And, and what you're doing is you're trying to take down the obstacles. But I would also say that one of the challenges with these micro cap markets is, you know, that, that, that the classic electronic penny tick size increment market is, you know, does not work for micro cap companies, small cap companies, that you need to have actual a- adequate commissions for brokers or intermediaries and salespeople to get on the phone. And because those markets don't trade innately by themselves, they're not liquid by themselves. They need storytellers. They need people getting you know, on the phone, doing equity research. And so, you know, higher spreads, telephone quoted spreads, bringing institutions in, that market structure is so important. And so this one size fits all market that we went to in the United States with low cost uh, trading and electronic trading is absolutely uh, an impediment to, to small companies going public and being properly supported and enjoying a reasonable cost of capital. It's one of the reasons why we got, we actually got very close in the, in the Trump administration to a new act. It was called the Main Street, uh, was it called the, the Main Street Growth Act with uh, Congressman Emmer that was then embedded in, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in the Jobs and Investor Confidence Act of 2018 that would have come up with, it would have introduced an entirely new public market structure for smaller capitalization companies. And that's what's needed. You know, this notion that what works for innately liquid, large cap Fortune 500 companies, you know, and, and, and is very, uh, has very low, co- low, low transactional costs, uh, it, it is, 
you know, what people don't understand is that because you've got a network effect with tens of thousands of investors looking at Microsoft any any minute of any day or Intel or or uh, Exxon Mobil, uh, that that um, that you that that when you get into micro cap markets and they're so efficient, what you do is you just obliterate the intermediaries that are needed to find you know buyers to offset sellers and sellers to offset buyers, and so so. You know, there's been a lot of um, of, of um, one size fits all market creation throughout the globe, which has actually uh, actually undermined the whole growth community. And because if, if you can't get the companies public and supported earlier on with real institutional capital, then what happens is you're 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 making it harder for people to get access for making investments in private companies. What does that do? That creates a negative feedback loop, and now you have less access to capital for smaller companies. And um, so these things are all related. And uh, and um, you know we just need we just need to have public market structures for smaller capitalization companies that are optimized for the needs of those companies and the needs of the investors, and particularly the institutional investors in those companies. And then if we do that and lower the bar to going public. I think that you'll see lots of money flow into ultimately startups and you'll see a renaissance in technology innovation and breakthroughs. And by the way, this stuff's important. I don't know if I told you that uh, the biotechnology industry organization in the United States, you know, invited me to do a fireside chat in their conference in uh, in uh, uh, in uh, the early part of this year uh, for the 10th anniversary of the Jobs Act. And they pointed out to me that the Jobs Act had tripled the number of IPOs in the life sciences industry, and they credited for in the first five years of the Jobs Act, causing 18 new drugs to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And I ran into Lawrence Kim, who was the uh, CFO of Moderna at a victory lap celebration down in Washington. And Lawrence said that the Jobs Act enabled Moderna to raise capital that turned into the most effective COVID vaccine in the world. So I, I think that, you know, that people underestimate, you know, the power of getting market structure right and the importance of it to, you know, the, the future of, of our societies and our children. And so that's why I get so excited about this stuff, because I think that it's, it's if you want to accelerate and amplify social impact, and uh, the ability to defend our countries, uh, all the things that we hold dear, that you have to get these markets right. David Weld, I agree. Thank you so much. We're going to take a final break for some final messages and be back with uh, David with some concluding comments in just two minutes. Stay with us, everybody. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. back everyone to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. We've been chatting tonight with David Weld of Wilden Company. It's a uh, uh, decentralized investment bank and he's got really quite a fascinating model and he's been uh, uh, the subject of a cover story uh, in a, um, a financial magazine recently talking about uh, how it's one of the fastest growing companies and it really has uh, been quite successful of late. Um, and David says that his uh, business in the first six months of 2022 uh, is up over 30% over the full year of 2021. Uh, pretty spectacular. So uh, you said that you've got uh, a little bit of business in Canada. How do I join if I want to join? Well, I think that people that are registered or you know need to be registered want to transact, particularly in the United States right now. I mean, even out of Canada, give, you know, reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. It's David Wheel, W-E-I-L-D, the fourth. And uh, where you can email me at david.wield at wieldco.com. Uh, I'm also, I make a, you know, an appeal, you know, when we get uh, major legislation passed and work with, you know, work with uh, regulators, it helps having big alliances. And so, uh, you know, when we did the Jobs Act, we had uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the National Venture Capital Association, you know, working with us. I mean, folks that represent major trade organizations and the like life sciences biotechnology industry organization we want everybody uh that i think would be well received in washington to 
associate. We're even talking to some major churches. Uh, uh, and, um, and so, you know, reach out and let's engage in a conversation, uh, uh, maybe get on our mailing list. Let's, uh, and let's, uh, let's make sure that, uh, that, uh, you know, we, we, we broadcast, uh, from the mountaintops so that every, every, every politician, policymaker and regulator can understand, uh, the importance of the kinds of changes that we're trying to drive for the future of the next generation. David Wild, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if I could uh, end with a couple of my own uh, thoughts on this, I've spent uh, most of my career raising money. Uh, I've raised money in uh, the biotech business and uh, technology uh, business and real estate in uh, beer and entertainment and a couple of other areas. I've done it uh, in the United States in, uh, in debt markets and equity markets in Canada in debt markets and equity markets. And I've done it in private uh, markets. And I do think that we in Canada have a challenge. Uh, I don't think that it is um, nearly as easy as it could and should be to raise money, particularly uh, for maybe not small companies, but medium-sized companies. Um, and when you get large, regrettably, um, you almost got to go to the United States and, 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 uh, and, and the volumes are such, uh, the markets are such, the expertise is such that if you're not in the oil and gas or mining business, uh, you end up, uh, as I did, spending way too much time in uh, San Francisco and New York uh, and Boston uh, going to talk to institutional um, investors. I do think there are some things that we need to address in Canada. Maybe uh, I'm going to have to find the David Wield of Canada um, and uh, talk to him or her about uh, what we can do to improve the markets in Canada, make it easier to, uh, to raise money for those startup companies, but also those uh, um, those uh, medium-sized companies that, uh, that need to go public because it is becoming more challenging and a lot of the same challenges that David talked about um, um, for medium-sized companies in the United States exist in Canada as well. Anyway, David, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your success. I look forward to, uh, to following uh, your, uh, your successes in the future. Thank you, Brian. Nice to see you again. That's our show for tonight, everybody. I'm on every Monday through Friday at six o'clock on 960 AM. You can stream me online, even from New York, sir at www.saga960am.ca. Good night, everybody. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.